I'll paraphrase Thoreau here. Rather than love, than money, than faith, than fame, than fairness, give me truth. You're listening to the Jobs and Science Podcast. I'm Martin Babian. For this month's episode, we have a bit more of a punk rock theme going. That's because our guest this month, Mina Bissell, embodies punk rock. Now you could ask what a five-foot Iranian-born scientist has to do with punk rock. To understand that, you would have to understand the relationship between punk rock and modern science. Two things which are probably more closely related than given credit. Punk rock was founded on one principle, do it yourself. If you wanted to make music, you had to get out there and you had to make it happen. It's meant that early punk rockers had to press their own records, book their own shows, and put their sweat, blood, and tears into their music. That reminds me a lot of grad school and modern science. In this interview with Mina, I got the sense that she has the same passion for science that musicians often have for their music, and it's contagious. And underlying all of this is the sense of rebellion. If the system doesn't work for me, fuck the system make it work. Maybe that's a little dramatic, but you know what? How about you listen for yourself and make up your own mind? P.S. This one starts with a little bit of a monologue, but it's worth it. The first time that the interviewer sits there, I have had, as I said, many interviews they're all on my website. You can go look uh, about whatever it is you don't ask, and I answer. But I just tell them the same things with or without interview. Well, go for it. <laughs> so what's, uh, what do you have to say? Mm, I have a lot to say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing is, if you don't put your um, cell phones away, I'm not going to talk. <laughs> put it away. Uh, mm-hmm. So I did actually read a few articles about you, mm-hmm. and one of the things that really stood out was uh, you had your first kid in the first year of your PhD. So This is 50 years ago, folks. Yeah. So um, at Harvard Medical School, when there was one faculty who was woman, and they were in the medical school class, um, they were three women and 200 men. And I showed up pregnant, first year graduate school. <laughs> and of course, everybody thought I was kidding, and I should go home, and, um, and people used to say, what's your mother going to say? Well, you know, I come from Iran, and you guys have so many Iranian students, it just boggles my mind. Half the, uh, Vancouver seems to be Iranian. And they are all very good students, and they're all terrific people. But I come from that kind of culture, so all my aunts were professors. So I, I was lucky. I, um, I say to people, so my mom calls from Iran, and she says, you're not quitting, are you? And I said, how many mothers 50 years ago in the U.S. or in Germany or in Switzerland or whatever told their kids, you're not quitting? They would say, well, you should just stay home and take care of your kid. Or, you know, I, they, except for the Chinese women um, who are lucky enough to have their grandmother and their mother come to them, or the Indian woman, or the you know, really, it's a very different kind of uh, background. 
But I like to start by, um, it starts, I already started. <laughs> <laughs> I like to say to you guys that the important thing for people to realize is that we don't train you to become professors. We train you, hopefully, to solve problems. And the fact that you actually finish a degree, package it, put it together, get up in the morning and say, oh, God, that experiment didn't repeat. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no idea what's, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of that is very important for the fact that you're solving a problem. And when you do your thesis, you have packaged it, you have put it together. It's like dropping a baby. You keep thinking it's not ever going to happen. But it actually comes out with two eyes and one nose, you know, usually. <laughs> and, and so it's perfectly um, okay to do all sorts of things. So my biggest advice to you is to have a second plan, have a plan B. People get so scared. They get so scared there are not enough jobs. They get so scared about what's going to happen when I, you know, are going to be so worried about what's actually happening. And I think that if you were able to actually realize, it's like my daughter, you know, you're in Canada, you're in um, U.S., you're in whatever you can do. All, there are a lot of opportunities. My son has a PhD in evolutionary biology, but he's making software now with a virtual center, and he wants to educate everybody on math. So they have the software where, where the kids um, interact with the web. That's one big message. The other one is that it actually emboldens you if you thought of something else that you thought, why not? The best thing that happened to me, believe it or not, Persians have a very nice saying. They say, the enemy can bring good if goodness is willing. So when I was 40, I had my two incredible first grants, and we were on soft money. I was so excited. One was from NSF, and one was from um, Department of Energy, and I had hired two postdocs, one on each grant. Couldn't wait to have them come. And the director of the lab had changed. It used to be the guy, Melvin Calvin, who won the Nobel Prize. And he was the guy who fired me the day I walked into the lab, pregnant with my second kid. Um, I had given a lecture at three months and um, didn't announce to anybody I was pregnant. I didn't see why I should do that. So I showed up seven months pregnant and I was very round, and I had a nine-pound baby being so little. And I walked through the door. I was wearing a long dress, and he was coming down the step. He looked like Picasso. And he looked at me and said, who are you? And I said, I'm in a vessel. I interviewed for this job to come and help you set tissue culture, he said. Well, we don't let pregnant women in the lab. You turn around and go back home. So he fired me on the spot. So, but the funny thing is that he used to fire me every two weeks, I swear. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was really impossible because nobody would disagree with him. And then he would get up and say something very, very, um, it just wasn't true about biology. And I would say, excuse me, 
but I don't think that's true. Uh, what about you? And he would go and talk to his um, lieutenants and say, Mina has to go. And it was so hard, I would go home and cry. You know. Anyway, so towards the end, he and I became the best friends. And the reason was that I one day looked at him and said, Dr. Calvin, everybody calls you Calvin. I'm going to call you Melvin, the way Americans do. And I said, what's your problem? I think you are so smart, and I think you know so much. He was doing evolution and brain research and you know, plant energy production and whatever, and then he wanted to do cancer. And I said, look, I'm not questioning you because I think you don't, I think you're the smartest guy I know, but you don't know everything. Don't act like God. And why on earth do you keep firing me all the time? Because <laughs> I would, honestly, I would go home, cry, and then his uh, former student, who was also his lieutenant, would call me up and said, just stay out of the way, Mina. He'll calm down. <laughs> it was really unreal. So he um, uh, resigned, and a new guy came who was a professor of chemistry, very famous in Berkeley. Now, at that time, the director of the lab was a chemist, and he was a very famous chemist, and before that, he had been the dean at Berkeley. So he had appointed this guy to my division, okay? So he, in no time at all, he wanted my money, he wanted my space, and he wanted other things. So here I was at the age of 40 with my two first grants, so excited, and this guy wouldn't see me to sign. He had me hostage. I would get up in the morning, I would go to his room, and I would say, doctor, are you here? She would say, I'm sorry, he doesn't have any time to see you. Six months of this. And he had promised somebody else to, that if Mina left, you could be my deputy, but I'm going to make sure that... It was really crazy. So at Christmas time, I finally... And this is now a long time ago, yeah? 30 years ago, whatever. I um, sent my uh, family skiing. You can ask and stop me anytime you want. Okay, so... No, let me... What's the point of, like, what are you trying to say? What was your experience here like? Can you wait? Yeah. Two minutes? <laughs> so um, that's why I'm telling it to them, okay. right? Because um, I told them they need a second career, right? Okay. So I was walking around the lake, and a light went up. And I thought, shoot, I can open a restaurant, and it'll be a really good one. And I said, what's the, what, what's the point? Why should he destroy my career? Why should I be so upset? Why will you know? If, and everybody had said to me that the pre director of the lab will not take your side because this guy is his colleague. So I thought, well, so what? I go talk to David Shirley, and if he doesn't take me, he doesn't take my side, as everybody said. There is no way they won't take it. Then I would, um, I would open a restaurant. My husband and I actually had joked to each other about how nobody had a good Persian restaurant and how we were going to do this. So this gave me the courage to actually, actually challenge him. So at Christmas time, I sat down and I wrote a long letter and I said to this guy, you are the new director, it's your right to do whatever you want, but you don't have to do it at my expense. There's another division, they do medical science, and I have talked to the director of that that thing, and 
I want to move with half my space, whatever. And at that time, Calvin had given me a million dollars that Department of Energy had given him to actually build a tissue culture facility. And I had helped the architect and whatever to build it. So it was sort of like a building that this other guy and I had put together. So all I was asking was half that space and have somebody sign my grant so I can get my postdoc and do the work. It was pathetic. I can't tell you how hard it was. But the point was that just the idea that I have another possibility, that I am intelligent, I did my thesis, I solved all those problems, why not do another thing and do a good job? It would have been fun. It would have been something else. So I wrote this letter, and I, and I made a copy for Melvin Calvin, a copy for him, and a copy for that other guy, and a copy for whatever. I came first day of New Year, I mean the day after New Year, and put it on his desk. Next thing I know, this guy calls me in after six months of not... Oh, Mina, Mina, what is wrong? We could have run Berkeley campus together. And I had said to him already, excuse me, sir, I don't want to run Berkeley campus. I just want you to sign my grant. Well, you know, he had all sorts of other plans. I said, I need to see Dave Shirley. He said, oh, we can solve this. I said, no, we can't. You haven't seen me for six months. This is it. So I said, let's call up Dave Shirley. So we called, and we, I, I, he said, he's busy. I said, I'm going to call him. I don't know if somebody had tipped him or not. So, so do you think you had to go through that like, whole experience of kind of agonizing over it to, to step up and, and like, speak out for yourself? For six months, I didn't know what to do. Yeah? That's why I give them the advice, okay? Mm-hmm. It's going to happen to you. They're going, you're going to get a job, and the... You know, especially with the women, but they do that to the men, and especially the foreign men, as well as whatever. They overload you with all sorts of things. They do this, they do that. You know, you, you just, they just want to see how much you can take. <laughs> and um, if it gets to a point that you can't do your experiments and do, you know, write your grant and do... Exactly. I wish I were wiser. I wish I had some... Other person, you know, I would I would uh, consult with my husband or with other people. I would cry. I would say, "What am I going to do?" But I had to come to a realization that my degree gave me the right to be able to do something else. It is it's that knowledge of solving problem that should enable you to trust yourselves. But part of that, I think. Like, there is something really special about going into the sciences, right? I think it's, it's very similar to, like, someone going into art. You, you don't go into science because, you know, you're going to be successful or maybe not everyone thinks that way. You do it because you love the process. You love doing science. You're a curious so. person, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, how do you say, oh, choose an alternative to the people who really want to do, like, science or curious individuals? Well, it's not the only thing you can do. You know, if you watch my TED Talk, and you see that I actually debated as a... The, the, point, the point, however, is you have to empower yourself. And I wish somebody had said that, even though I felt very empowered, because I come from that kind of background. I, have, I came from a very educated family. If I didn't get a PhD, my parents would have been very unhappy. This is so many years ago. It was a very, very educated family. I remember my aunts were professors. My uncles were judges and whatever, and I was fortunate that way. But the point is, regardless of what you're back, and of course that background enables you 
to be sure of yourself. But even so, I had no idea what to do. And I was stuck because of my husband, because he was a medical doctor and he uh, was during Vietnam War. And if he would leave the area, they would have sent him to Vietnam. So he was part of what they called Berry Plan, and he was working in the, as a doctor in the Navy. And, and so I didn't have many choices. And also, remember what I was doing? I showed you. I was doing glucose metabolism. Nobody wanted to give a job to somebody at the age of oncogene who's doing glucose metabolism. You know? Oh, this old hat is a stupid thing. Why is she doing this messy thing? I can't tell you how much I heard that. So well educated. She won a medal of honor for chemistry. She did this. What is she doing? So you just have to really empower yourself. I mean, I think it's one thing to, like, yeah, I, I agree with you, empowering students and, like, telling people, you, you know, you're in charge of your own destiny. You have to go out and make it. What do you think your responsibility is as a professor, maybe not to us, but to your students? How do you make sure that they feel and uh, become empowered? Well, um, you just take a look at... Um how many of my kids are professors and how many of them do well? They all do well. Okay. So and because, the... because I empower them. I say, you know, I sit them down and I say, come on, now go. And I drop them in the lab. I don't tell them you have to make buffer with percent whatever or whatever. They have to go find out. They have to do it. They have to learn. And a lot of the kids are sort of want to be spoon-fed, and um, that's not the way to train them, because when they leave, they don't know how to write a grant, they don't know how to write a paper. I have this Japanese guy who just still comes and goes in my lab. I, he and I wrote 75 version of his paper before we published it in development, 75. And every version, we sat down and went over every sentence. They don't teach them that in Japan. The professors are like that. I told you my, my former postdoc is so miserable. They just uh, treat their uh, assistant. You know, they take the same graduate student, they make, give them PhD, they are whatever, then they do postdoc, then they become assistant professorship. They never teach them how to really think, how to really speak English, how to do whatever. Japanese, they have a really hard time with English. So all your, all your kids became academic? Uh, no, many of them are. No, I mean, they're all successful. So what, hmm. other, what other? Oh, they're at Genentech. They are at, um, you know, companies. They are at one of them is a, was not very good experimentally, and I sat him down and I said, you know, you are going to kill yourself and you're not going to make it, but you're so bright. He had gone to Yale and Harvard and MIT. He was, I mean, he was just amazing, but he just didn't know how to do an experiment worth a damn. He just didn't have the hands. So what happened to him? I told him to go and become a science writer, and he did. And so he became an editor. Drop out of your lab? Yeah. Yeah. Well, after, after I kept him for two years, and mm-hmm. then I realized that he's not going to make it. He was not very happy when I told him that. Mm-hmm. But he then was very happy after. So what do you and think? There are not very many of them, though. I have trained about 100 people, and uh, they all, I think, they're all, they're, there are lots of professors all over. Some of them have been deans. Some of them have, you know, and, and a number of them go into um, administration or other things like that. One of them, who was the guy who helped me do the um, chicken experiment, 
um, we didn't have time to talk about why not embryo and why chicken, do you remember? So uh, he, um, he really, if he wasn't in my lab, he couldn't do a thing. He went to Salk Institute. He was an undergraduate with me, and we, op we published. He was in drugs, into drugs and stuff. And I got him all excited, so he finished his, his bachelor, and he went to Salk Institute. So he volunteered in my lab, and we published a couple of papers together. He went to Salk Institute, and, and he was a dud. You know, he did all sorts of things, and people would say, you know, we thought he was so smart. He was. So I finally said to him, you're so fast, and, you're, and he was funny. And he was so fast with his responses. And I said, you know, you better go to law school and, and major in, in patent. And he did that. And he's now a successful patent lawyer. So it so, sounds like it's more about a reflection process. Like, if you know what your strengths are and are honest with yourself, that's how you'll succeed. It's not really. Or if you have a mentor who tells you, but I'm just yeah. saying that very many do, mm. and all the things I'm telling you, I had to discover them for myself. But I insist on talking to the kids when I go, and I say all the things that you and I would say in this because I think they need to hear it. They need to hear that. That um, first of all, the other thing you need to hear is that there is tremendous dignity in work tremendous dignity in work. It doesn't matter what you do. You have to earn your living. As long as you work hard, I think. Like if you're proud of what you do, I I, I said to that, my yeah. children, you know, I uh, you can clean floor if you like, but do it well. <laughs> <laughs> so you how about some questions? I feel like this is uh, a bit one-sided. How do you find a good mentor? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, it depends what stage you are. So if you want to give... Get, go into a graduate school and you um, want to uh, get a PhD or something, it's, it's okay if the mentor is not 100% understanding and whatever and whatever, as long as they have enough empathy um, to give you a little breathing space for you to grow up, if they are really good scientists, so they can learn a lot of good techniques and a lot of good way of thinking. Now, when you become a postdoc, it's really important to write someone who will stay with you after you leave postdocs because you're going to need help. You're going to need uh, letters of recommendation. You're going to need, uh, you know, people need help to move to the next stage. So what you have to do is you look around, uh, either where you are or whatever. You start before you are absolutely dropped a baby. Um, you have to start two years or so before your PhD. I said in uh, UBC on Friday that they, they keep these kids seven years. It is insane. Sometimes ten. It is insane. <laughs> I think that you all need an organization with the people at UBC. You're officially UBC students anyway. You have this organization. They have that organization. You should get together and just sit down with the administrators and your professors that if the kid by the year second is not, you don't see, you don't see that they can do whatever, you give them a master's and they can go elsewhere or do whatever. But if you keep them, you have to see to it that they get out by the five years, at most six. 
This is ridiculous. You're not going to learn that much more. They just want more papers. It's not good. It's just unacceptable is your life. But having said that, let me tell you, you're all so young. One year here, one year there, doesn't matter. But seven years of this should go, one or two years of that should go into the postdoc, where that is where your destiny is, because you will use that for getting a good job of any kind, okay? And, and then you need, so what you have to do is you have to go for interviews, you have to talk to people who come, you can see how they behave, you then look to see how many of their postdocs, where are they? Where have they gone? How many postdocs did he have? Forty. How many of them actually made it? I'm, I'm just not picking. I just know this to be a fact. One of my um, graduate students went to postdoc with him, and after four and a half years, he left without saying goodbye because every time he came to talk to him, he said, this is against paradigm. <laughs> Nobel Prize winner tells his postdoc is against paradigm. It just boggles my mind. You would jump by joy saying, okay, show me your data. <laughs> Let's see if you can break your paradigm. Yeah. Determine where a student is fit for scientific work by the, the second crucial year, you said, right? What makes a student stand out? A curiosity. I think curiosity and willing to take on challenging problem and at least being able to reproduce a few experiments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty obvious. They fall into, I mean, I have not had that many people I couldn't train, but there was a gal who just didn't, you know, she had gone in immunology, and then everybody said, Mina, you're such a good mentor, you should take her. After a year and a half, I knew she couldn't make it. And my postdocs came and said, Mina, we haven't given her enough time, you're going to work with her, we're going to... But boy, after a year, they were climbing the wall, and by then it was too late not to give her a PhD. Do you think people are just trying to be too, like, polite and, like... Well, they were, they had empathy. They yeah. felt we hadn't spent, I hadn't spent more time with her mm -hmm. or something. So we gave her a PhD. I mean, she wrote a thesis. People helped her. But then I sat her down and I said, my baby, you don't know how to think about science. You don't know how to plan experiments. If, I said, on the other hand, you're smart. You can think, you can do, and she had a beautiful opera voice. And I said, you know, go to a junior college or something and teach. And then go and learn how to sing. You're just so good, you know, in whatever. I said, but don't go into a lab because I'm not going to give you a good recommendation letter. I can't. Because you just don't know how to do this. So I don't know how you, you know. And she was more reasonable than the guy I made a journal editor. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but so this is what happened to you when you were young, right? You were also told you couldn't continue, but you made it. Yeah, because, so, so maybe that's yeah. what the special thing is, right? It's like if someone tells you no, I think you have to say, I know what I want, mm. right? And mm. I'm going to I make don't care it. what they say. And if they don't want you, then you go to somebody else. Yeah. You always have that right to do that. Or think I think about that's it. what empowerment Does, is. Doesn't it like sort of kills your motivation when you hear from your mentor that probably you won't be able to do it. I mean, yes, you have to like stand up for yourself and do like exactly what you want to do, but a part of it is also like really brings you down and shows. Yeah, my professor at Harvard said to me, you'll never make a scientist. You should go dance. Because I used to do ballet. 
So you all should read this thing. I wrote a page for nature cell biology. Uh, it's called Turning Point. Look it up. There are a lot of people who wrote it. They asked me after, you know, and then. Uh, so I wrote that. I wrote that about my graduate work. Hmm. Okay, and I said what I did, but I was persistent. So I say in that thing that you know I I disproved him. He had given me a thing that that um, took me six years to disprove him, but I did. And I went to him when in my fourth year, and he said, and I said these proteins are getting out unfolded. And he said he was Italian, and he said, what do you think they are, spaghetti? <laughs> <laughs> And of course, he said, you know, Mina, you'll never make a scientist. You should go do ballet or do whatever, you know. So I went and cried for days. And then I went to some other nice guy, and I said, what do you suggest I do? I think he's mad at me also because I have a baby. And he said, well, Mina, you, you, um, the burden of proof is on you. You're saying something very unconventional, and you want to show it? You have to do more experiment to really show it, and that's what I did. I designed experiments to really that he couldn't refute, and he, in fact, uh, in those days, that's what the guys did to, to the women. They would first look and say, this person can't do any science. They're, they're little, you know, women, and then they would say, you go dance or whatever, and when you prove yourself, they will fall in love with you. It was a mess. <laughs> they would say, you know, they want to possess you because, oh, she's so smart, or whatever. And he was 70 years old, but he was just, well, he was Italian, you know. So anyway, so we were very good friends, but he was, he was so funny. And, and, um, and so I just did that, you know. You guys so, just need to speak up, I think. Yeah, yeah I think more it. people. Yeah, come on. Like, one of the things you have to do is kind of go on your own, uh -huh. do your own experiment. Mm -hmm. so, but how do you, I mean, I don't know, like, I find it really hard to do my own thing in the lab because, you know, you, there's so many stipulations on, you know, money and reagents and all that kind of stuff. How do you do that without, on your own time and with everything on your own? Like, I don't know how I'm trying to phrase this as well. Like, but. I can't tell you. I can't tell you how to do that. I can't tell you how to... Um, I, I can give you a very good advice, though. So I was in Texas many years ago, and um, I was giving two or three, whatever, of a series of talks, and then all of a sudden I had 50 people at breakfast. I was younger than I could take it. So, uh, so the guy asked me that question and said, Dr. Bissell, I'm going to go have my own lab. What's your advice? What do I do to be successful? And I said, I said, I can't tell you how to be successful. I, I don't know what your postdocs are. I don't know what your budget is. I don't know who the whatever is. You know, you, you have to figure that out. But I will give you an advice, but you have to put your hand up and you say you will take it. And he looked at me, you know, Americans, you don't want anybody. So I said, well, if you want an answer, put your hand up. And then they were all these other kids. I said, will you put your hand up? And few of them refused. And I said, well, you can leave the room. If you are curious, you can stay, but put your hand up. So I looked at them and I said, exercise. And they all said, huh? <laughs> exercise. When you can't figure it out, go and run. Get addicted to exercise. It's the best addiction you can have. 
And my husband, who is a very good athlete, as well as a good doctor, as well as a good researcher, he makes me sick. He's good in everything. So, <laughs> so he used to say to me, you know, you have a backache or you have the whatever, whatever, exercise. So I would exercise and I would hurt myself because I would say, well, I don't have time. I had two kids and I was director of 700 people. I made that division to do whatever. I said, I don't have time. But you don't have time not to exercise. Figure it out. Allow your brain to make good pheromone. You are getting depressed. You don't know what to do. Go exercise. That's the best advice, the second best advice I can Go give. Actually, that's the first one. Okay, honey. Yeah. I have a question. So you have an impressive career, and you also have family. And I'm just wondering like, how you find the balance or um, at the level that you're going, um, the amount of energy and the time that you have to devote to both your work and family. Yeah, people say to me, how did you do it? And you know what I say? Exercise. Badly. <laughs> badly. <laughs> badly. No, I did it very badly. But, but nobody does it well. You know, they, they, let, they let everybody who wants to go fishing to go get a license. You have a kid, nobody tells you what to do. It's hard, especially the first kid. I made a lot of mistakes. But I tell you, my two kids are more together. They have good families. One of them had a hard time. One of them didn't. They both are successful. They both have had PhDs. They have good families themselves. They do whatever. The important thing is the quality of uh, how you interact with your kids rather than how long you interact with them. I know a lot of moms who just stay at home all the time and their kids are all in drugs and this and that. You know, you can't, you, you just have to find again the balance for yourself. But of course, you need to have a partner who is willing to put up with you, right? <laughs> because it's not easy. And at work as well, right? Like we only have, you know, 24 hours and of which we can only devote to work. Do you have some advice to how, how you have become effective? Or, um... Well, you know, I can't again. It's like, like what this guy asked me. I can't tell you how to be effective. You have to find out how to be effective. You have to find the balance for yourself that would allow you. Now, admittedly, I had a lot of energy. And, uh, and my sister always says, oh, you know, you're also a good student. Well, fine, there's a zillion good students out there, you know? They don't make it. And either they don't have the opportunity or they don't do whatever else. You have to find a balance for yourself. You have, to, you have to take a little from here. People always try to make you feel bad. They always are going to say, oh, you're not staying home with your baby, or, oh, you're not working hard enough, or you're not doing what." Just, you know, it's life. Life is messy, but it's also wonderful. So you have only one life. Do something good with it. Do something good with it, you know? Yeah, um, going back to what you mentioned earlier about how difficult it was for you, like being pregnant or like expecting a family and trying to find a good position, do you think this has changed over time? How do you feel it is now? I think it has gotten much better for two reasons. One is that the guys are more understandable or, or your women have other choices, you know. I always say there's never a good time to have a baby. There's never a bad time to have a baby. You want one, go ahead, do it. Don't keep waiting and say, I'll do this and I get my tenure and then, and then you can't have it, you're too old. Or you, 
So you just, you just have to make a decision. In fact, there is a woman at Harvard, and she was 42. She said, oh, God, I really want a baby, and I can't find a guy. I said, go ahead, do it these days. You can have a baby on your own. She is the happiest. She has a beautiful baby, and her mom comes helping. She's from Hungary. Her mom comes and helps her. She's a full professor now, and uh, she's happy, okay? So, so people can do all sorts of things that they didn't used to be able to do. But I tell you, my wonderful husband who married me, uh, he's six feet five, I'm not even five feet one. We met over a centrifuge, and, uh, <laughs> and we had a fight. And um, when uh, I didn't know, I never learned how to type because I thought, oh, I get my own secretary. Boy, was that ever a mistake. <laughs> with, the, with the webs and with the computers and with the emails, oh, I'm, I, I typed like this, and now I have arthritis in my finger. Anyway, so I had my thesis, and I had to pay somebody to type it, and my daughter was sick, and my uncle was coming to town, and the last part of my thesis stayed in the Xerox machine, and you guys don't know how many things you have now that you didn't, none of us used to have. So, so my husband was driving me, and um, he looked at me, and I said, oh God, I left the last page in the Xerox on Harvard Square. We have to go back. He looked at me and said, you know, a working woman is for the birds. He literally said that, and I said, oh yeah? Okay, well, I think I have enough money. You want to let me out of the car? I'm leaving. And he has never mentioned it, and he doesn't admit he said it. <laughs> but, yeah. but he really did. The guys try to control you. The other women try to control you. Your mom tries to control you. They, what, what, what. You just got to find a balance. You, I said to him, I don't want a sugar daddy. I want a friend. I want to be. You know, you all have to read, including the guys, you have to read Virginia Woolf's book. It's called A Room of One's Own. She wrote it in 1929. It's an amazing book. Somebody asked her to give a talk on women and fiction, and she was furious. And she wrote about, well, let's see, why didn't Shakespeare's sister write? And then she just... But she argues that in order for a woman to write, she needs a room of her own and 500 pounds a year. Now, of course, you need a lot more these days, uh, but you do need a room of your own. You need a certain degree of autonomy. In early part of our marriage, my husband would say, you're going to go to Boston and you're going to go to that place which has all this, don't buy so much. I said, excuse me, do I tell you what to do? You have to earn your own living. You absolutely got to do it. There's dignity in it, and you don't want to be dependent on other people. And when people, as, as this thing proved to me, this light that went off on my head, it gave me the courage to do all sorts of things. Admittedly, I was always an adventurous girl. Different people do it differently, okay? I mean, different people don't go at my age and and lecture. I have been to Japan twice this year. I have been to China. I have been to India. I have been to whatever. I have been to you guys. I'm no, no, no. People do it differently. You don't have to do what I did. It, it fits my personality. And I was on 
Ever since I was little, I was on the stage. I always loved theater. I loved theater. You saw that I didn't give a talk. I did a performance, right? (laughs) It's true. So, you know, but you don't have, not everybody has to do that, but I teach everybody in my lab how to give talks. It's a real art. He said it rightly, because I think the best scientists are also artists. And uh, if those of you who have seen my, my TED talk, you know what I had to do to teach 600 people in that audience uh, talk about something they knew nothing about. They, none of them were scientists. They, a lot of techies and a lot of older people. You have a question? Yeah. Come on, you guys, that yeah. side, ask a question. Hello, everyone. So um, you mentioned in your talk as well, uh, you wrote an opinion piece in 1970, and then people 10 years later were finding the same thing. I think this was for political saturation, how that feeds into mutagenesis. And as a budding researcher, how was that as an external pressure for you, where you're like writing these sort of like non-anti-paradigm sort of views, or like things that people would not necessarily take seriously until quite a while later, and still have that as a major part of your research going forwards, and at the same time also focus on publishing things that people find relevant at that particular point of time? Like, was that also like one of the major? Is it still hard? As a, okay. Is it still hard? I mean, I told you I had my merit award taken away just because I don't believe that RAS is enough to make, uh, you know. People who are very famous are totally arrogant, and they're also arrogance comes from insecurity. They don't like an uppity little lady telling them. I don't tell them what to do. I just say, well, that may be true, but this is also true, you know. It's always hard. I couldn't get grant for 16 years. But I mean, it, it I sounds had, like, like you fight a lot about it as well, and like you're very vocal. Like, how much did other people and other scientists' acceptance of your work matter to you? Oh well, it matters a lot. I mean, that's that's why, um, and I think part of the reason is accepted. And Europe is accepted even now, almost hundred percent, as opposed to U.S., which they're still fighting if the microenvironment is important. A few of them, anyway. It matters a lot because if you can't communicate, you can't do science. You do, you do science, you have to communicate it. You have to either publish it as a paper or get grants or tell people what to do or tell whatever. You have to communicate. There's just no two ways about it. You can no longer do it in isolation. So is that because like, that's how the funding agencies are set up and like, that's the metrics of success? Or is that because it, you believe it matters to tell other people what you think? I believe it matters to tell other people. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the reasons I give so many talks, partly, is because it's not in your textbook. Even now, after 40 years of whatever, a lot of what I told you today is not in your textbooks. They tell me that Bob Weinberg's second version of his book has a lot of microenvironment, but apparently five, six years ago, or seven years, I don't know, he was in Canada, and apparently in Vancouver, and he had given a big talk on microenvironment. And somebody had said, Dr. Weinberg, that's very nice. Do you know Mina Bissell? And Dr. Weinberg had said, yeah, I know Mina Bissell, but Mina Bissell doesn't believe in genes. Well, huh? no? kind of a scientific question. And like, if you, if you had to rate the relative contribution of microenvironment and like uh, oncogenes, you know, between zero and 100, with 100% being like, you know, it's only microenvironment that's causing the cancer and zero being it's only oncogenes, where do you draw that line? I told you it's a dynamic reciprocity, right? Yeah. They're both important. There's absolutely, you can't do it without genes. I mean, what, for crying out loud, I wrote Bob and I said, you know, Jim Watson was my professor at Radcliffe at Harvard, 
and I have a degree in bacterial genetics. What do you mean I don't believe in genes? And three people had said to me this exchange, and he wrote back and said, I never said it. So I said, good. <laughs> I said, if you never said it, if somebody else says it, correct them, please. Mm. But um, it is, you can't do one without the other, right? Mm. So the, the, it is absolutely dynamic and it's absolutely reciprocal. So for your and intuition, how would, like, where's the quantification? How much do you feel? Is it like 90% microenvironment? You, you judge it yourself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have shown, uh, without a doubt, uh, and other people have shown, that you can get absolutely uh, cancer by just destroying the structure of the tissue. Mm. We did that in all those mouse experiments we did. And without it having, came from the stroma. Without having, without having mutations, you mean like driver well, mutations? Well, eventually, uh, there is no, I mean, what is a driver mutation? So like you, the glucose? You, you mean you can start with disturbing the microenvironment and that can drive mutation? Absolutely. We have a paper in American yeah, Journal of Pathology. Yay! A question from there. Wait. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, thank you very much for coming. This has been wonderful. Um, my question for you is public engagement is becoming more and more important. Um, and I can tell from what you're saying, you're probably a very strong advocate for public engagement. But as you've been communicating with us, even within the scientific community, there's a huge lag time between what professionals in a particular field are doing and what the rest of the scientific community knows. There's that much more of a lag time between us and really society. How do you think we, as, as scientists coming up in the world, can better engage the public, the lay society, as to what we're actually doing in the labs now? Well, you know, this is a big... Um uh, controversy at some level about how much the scientists could advertise their work and how they can advertise their work. Apparently there was an article in um, Scientific American recently uh, where a neurologist wrote a big article about the fact that a lot of scientists when you start sending press releases and doing whatever, whatever, whatever then, then people start not taking them seriously. In fact in the old days, if you went and patented your work, you were looked down upon because, you know, and I, in some way, I wish there were no patents and I wish there were no whatever, but, um, yeah, they, it's, it's, it, there, is a, there is a backlash, okay? But, but there is a fine window you walk, and the uh, reporter who had helped this neurologist to write that has called me. I haven't had time to talk to her. But she keeps calling and wants to talk to me. And she said, I saw your TED talk. And I just want to see how people react to it. Okay? So for me, that uh, TED talk, I was so tired. I had had four hours of sleep. I, it was just, you know, I, how I did it, I have no idea. But um, it seems to be translated into 30 languages. It's become a super TED. It was the only people who got mad at me were two people, and they objected to me showing the picture of Obama. <laughs> it was absolutely uncanny. Now, I don't normally show a picture of Obama when I do that thing. Uh, because I show a picture of Madonna. Okay, so I show an egg and a sperm coming to meet, then I show the four cells, say, then I show the embryo, then I show Madonna, and I say, look, this gene came from that single, uh, you know, pregnant cell, and made this woman with 70 trillion cells, and 
you know, so that really is potent. So I go there the night before I was laid. My American father was passing, and I had to go to Maine to see him and whatever, whatever. So they said to me, have you cleared this off with the, with the people who took the picture because it's not going to go on the web? And I said, this is a picture of Madonna all over the place. The photographer wanted money. And uh, so we had to decide really fast how to replace Madonna. <laughs> and uh, we needed somebody who would be well-known so people could recognize immediately and who wouldn't ask for money <laughs> and who was a public figure. And we settled on Obama, you know? It sounds so, like Madonna. <laughs> At least it rhymes with Madonna. Yeah. So this one guy was was fierce. I mean, I can't tell you. I don't have time to tell you, but it took me three months to respond to him. He was he was virulent. He said, "My daughter died of cancer. My wife died of cancer. My father has died of cancer. My daughter has cancer. Whatever." And here I want to do here I want to do this and. You are showing picture of Obama just because you like him. It was just at the time of election, you know, because I said this handsome man. So, um, so I had to write to him and said, "Get a life," you know. <laughs> and I said, "I said I feel very sorry for you, but you would think with all those people dying of cancer, you would understand why, you know." And then I explained to him. I said. But now that I hear you, next time I'm going to use Obama too. <laughs> yes, honey. Um, so I have maybe two questions, and one of them is professional, and one of them is more scientific. But I'll start with the professional one. Um, so over sort of your career, how do you think? Do you think science has fundamentally changed? And do you think it's like if you're thinking of a classic academic career, do you think it is harder now? in a way because of all the competition and um, the many people who are getting PhD to have a scientific career than it was when, when you were I have no idea. I had a hard time. You know, I mean, a lot of people... The guys, it's harder for guys because there weren't so many women around. <laughs> you know? but, but above and beyond that, above and beyond that... Um, there are a lot of people who, have, who now get degrees that they didn't used to. You know, it was a much smaller time and place. But I think it has corrupted, science has corrupted in a certain way, and is that, especially biology, because it's so lucrative. People now patent something, and then they open a company, and then they want that to be right, because that the company would not make money. If the you know if they don't tell whoever that that uh, I'm going to cure cancer, and so from that point of view, it has gotten more cutthroat, but it always has been to a certain degree. If you read um, even the older people who did science, but the um, the few of them were very nasty to other people. Darwin nearly killed Lamarck. He did. It was Lamarck who wrote to Darwin and said, you know, I see that this is evolution, this is what, and Darwin thought, ooh, I better publish my stuff, because, you know, it was against the church to publish that stuff. And, and then they started f making fun of Lamarck. He died a pauper. And now we know, because of epigenome, that he was very, you know, he had a lot of insight. He was a really, so that, I mean, that's only one example. But there are other people who work in low-dose radiation and suppress the data. 
because they wanted everything to be linear. That's why we still treat low-dose radiation as if it's the high-dose, and the guy who won the Nobel Prize basically killed the career of the others. Career of a guy called Peter Duesberg got killed because he was, like, very uppity. He was the one who discovered oncogene. You know, he should have won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and he was the guy who first isolated PP60 SARC. This is now 40 years ago. So it's, it's always has been, I mean, people are not um, all, you know, we are very different. We are in different circumstances. And, but it is harder for the reason that, in biology in particular, for the reasons that, that there are too many people and there are not enough jobs. But that's another reason why I say, and then a lot of people say we should stop kids from going to graduate school to get PhDs if there are not enough jobs. I mean, there was a big article by Harold Warmus and um, Shirley Tillman and, um, and Eric Lander and somebody else uh, in the PNAS saying this is what we should do. I totally disagree. I think getting a PhD opens up people's hat or any kind of education. They want to get five degrees, let them get five degrees. But I think the emphasis should be like, use it to do that process and learn to solve problems. Exactly, not, yeah. exactly. If you could tell yourself, yourself back when you were starting your PhD, one piece of advice to help you avoid as many mistakes in the future as possible, mm-hmm. what would that one little nugget of advice be? I gave it to them. Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> Exercise and don't have sugar too much. Okay. A little bit is Thank okay. You very much, You're welcome, honey. You did a good job. Thank you. Now, is that punk rock? This actually seems to be quite a theme in the interviews that we've done so far. Regardless of their environments, when people are passionate about what they do, they find a way. And at the same time, there's a balance with self-awareness and reflection. Know what your strengths are, know what makes you happy, and then do that to the best of your ability. Contrast that to episode three with Elaine Fuchs. In the coming months, we have a few really good interviews coming up. Andrew's been working on one with a science journalist, and we have a very special feature, which is actually taking a bit more production time than we thought, but... It'll make a really good story and make you question your relationship with your PI. So subscribe on whatever feed you use for your podcasts and those episodes will come right to you. Thanks for listening to the Jobs and Science podcast. If you want updates when events are happening or new episodes are coming out, you can probably find us on social media. I'd like to thank our sponsors and supporters, GrassPods and the Bennett family for inviting Mina to come speak with us and support from UBC's Faculty of Medicine and CITR. Everyone was saying, don't go there, don't go there. What happened? Mm. 
And I told her to go for it, and she listened to me, and she was wrong. You knew she was going to fail? There's only 99% sure. Where is she now? Med school. Poor kid. 